0: They called us up and they said, congratulations, you just rewrote the textbooks on how to introduce a consumer product. They started to wear it and overnight we became a $50 million business. One of the best things we did was to find the right... Hi, Austin. I am very glad to be here. My name is Dan Cohen. Right now, I work on some unusual products, but prior to this, I had uh, become a medical doctor, a neurologist, and I was really more interested in business and working on certain product ideas than I was in taking care of patients. So right after my residency, uh, within a year, I started a company by the name of CNS Inc. CNS uh, stands for Central Nervous System. So it was in line with my specialty as a neurologist. And we worked on a number of products over a number of years. Uh, The business was in operation between 1982 and 2006 when we sold it to GlaxoSmithKline. So we had a lot of history and uh, a lot of fun with it.
1: Right out of college, you were a doctor, but you're also kind of an entrepreneur?
0: Yeah, you know, I never really thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I I never really considered it, quite frankly. I went to college at Penn State, then I went to medical school in Philadelphia, Temple Medical School. And then I came out to Minnesota at the University of Minnesota to do my neurology residency. So it's a 12-year process. So by the time I was done, I was 30. And by the time we started the business, I think I was about 31.
1: Okay, tell us about CNS, I guess, and growing from 31 to where you are today.
0: Well, actually, CNS began at zero when we, we started out in 1982. We had some ideas. There were a couple of us neurologists. My partner stayed out in practice. I was the younger of the two of us, so I came in and did the business. When we started, our first idea that we thought was the most commercial was a brainwave monitor to help prevent strokes during high-risk surgery. So we would actually look at the EEG, the electroencephalogram, and what we did is we were one of the early people to computerize that. So we took the information and we, and we put a picture of the of a, a head up on the screen and had a little pie chart showing the different aspects. And we develop automatic warnings if there was a problem, particularly during open heart surgery where they use the bypass pump, blood flow can be reduced to the brain. And also carotid endarterectomy where they have to clamp the major artery to the brain and hope that they get enough flow from the other side. So we started out with that project and that was It was an interesting project in that we were able to implement it, develop a product, we validated it at the Mayo Clinic, and then we took it out in the market. I would go out with the salespeople for the first three months. You know, every week I was in another hospital doing product demonstration, and it was obvious to me after three months that this was going to be a total flop. Fortunately for the existence of the business, when I came back and reported this at a board meeting, my board of directors said, you know, what does he Know he's a doctor, he doesn't know business, and so they figured this guy probably just has the wrong salespeople or he can't sell himself. Let's just bring in somebody who was a well known salesperson at a big company and he'll solve the problem for us. That was the thinking. So what happened? Well, we brought in a really good guy. I mean, nothing wrong with the guy. He took over that project and quite frankly, it never really amounted to anything. He couldn't do any better. But the good news was that the board of directors and our investors, we had a number of venture capitalists by that point. They thought that this was definitely going to be a winner. So they were willing to keep trying. And what that allowed me to do was to, start another project within the company. And so I took the same hardware that we had developed and I morphed it with software into a product to help sleep laboratories, sleep disorder centers do their diagnostic work. So we made it a more automated sleep disorder diagnostic computerized device that they were really interested in. And we ultimately made a business out of that. The other business failed. The OR business failed. And after about five years of trying to make it work, we finally uh, discontinued that product line. But by then we had a thriving business in sleep disorders diagnostics.
1: Were you practicing at the same time? Like what was your time management like then dealing with all this kind of coming out of school and seeming more like a business guy than I guess practicing as a doctor?
0: Yeah, you know, you're right. I mean, I was full time with the business. I was board certified. I could have gone into practice at any time. I was a hundred percent operating the business.
1: So when you're spending that much time doing it, so do you have to keep things up to make sure that you could practice if you wanted to again? Or since then, have you always been more on the business side? I
0: was always more on the business side, but for some reason, you know, I never really considered going into practice, but I always did maintain my board certification. So if I needed to go into practice, I could. But quite honestly, even though I maintained my eligibility to do so, I don't know how well I would have been qualified, especially after, let's say, 20 years of doing Doing that because I really hadn't been practicing. And, and so I was away from the mainstream neurologic practice.
1: So what would you like to jump to next? So, because it seems like you've got a lot of good stories for us today, for like for the entrepreneurs who are listening, what, what do you think would be most helpful on your experiences that you've had so far?
0: Well, I think when I look back at those early days, I think one of the things that was important was developing credibility with my board of directors who were a lot more senior and more experienced than I. I mean, because they looked at me and they said, you know, he's a doc. He's not a business guy. I was really interested in this business becoming very successful over time. And so I wanted them to view me as more than a doc or a scientist or a guy who could also write software. I wanted them to look look at me and say, you know, this guy can make good business decisions. It was really important for me to develop that credibility with them. And I think the way that worked out was by me being completely honest with them. It's like, for instance, going back to those early days when we had the operating room monitor, it would have been easy to say, you know, this is going to work. Don't worry. This is going to happen. But by me claiming three months into the selling process that, guys, this isn't going to work. And this is why it's not going to work. And, and I was brutally honest. I told them that people like the surgeons and the anesthesiologists, they didn't want something in the operating room that could actually document that it was their fault. <laughs> this person had a stroke because uh, guess what? You left them on the pump too long. You had the blood pressure too low or you didn't notice this or that. Our technology could actually assign blame. And once you realize that, then you realize this product will never be successful until these surgeons and anesthesiologists changed their mode of operation. And so it became very clear to me that this wasn't going to work. And so I was very honest with the board. And I said, guys, I don't think this is going to work. I'm not opposed to having somebody that's more experienced at sales come in and take my place in trying to get this thing sold. But in the meantime, I'm going to develop another product. So if this guy can't make it happen, we still have a business. And I think the board was very impressed that, okay, you know what? He's getting out of the way. He's not making a big fuss over this thing. He's taking action to start another business within our business, just in case. And then when that other business worked out, it was like, hey, you know what? This guy just salvaged the company. And from their perspective, it was salvage their investment because, you know, these guys had put a fair amount of money into the business. And like every investor, they wanted a return.
1: What was the other product that you developed to make sure that the company was still okay? We developed a computerized product that took in all the data that they
0: record in the sleep lab. Sleep labs were starting to develop back in the mid-80s. People were looking primarily at sleep apnea. So during a sleep recording, they look at EEG, they look at eye movements, muscle activity, they look at respiratory activity, EKG, blood oxygen saturation, because the major diagnosis that they're looking for is sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea. And so they have to be able to document that with all of those different parameters. What we did is we brought all that information in, we recorded it, but we also analyzed it for them because the typical analysis process afterwards was four to six hours of a technician and we could reduce that to 20 minutes. So we developed a very nice cost savings and time savings device that allowed everybody to keep on schedule and and get all the recordings analyzed the next morning. So our product was seen as a big benefit to the sleep lab. And so we right away in our first year of introducing that product, we outsold what we had sold in the entire operating room uh, monitor business.
1: I imagine because the other product didn't work and it kind of assigned blame to those doctors, were you trying to look for a product that would only make things more efficient and helpful and maybe not assign blame, it sounds like, that also helped?
0: Yeah, Austin, that's a very good point. You know, I learned from my mistake. We hadn't done a good job of analyzing how the market would view it because we only talked to people who already did monitor brain function, but we didn't realize that the vast majority of people would not be interested. So this time I was looking for something that all the docs in the field would say, yeah, this is a good deal. We definitely need this. So I made sure that the market would buy into it before we even developed it. And in fact, I went to 20 centers around the country and I said, I want you to buy this before this product's even done. And then you can have input. And I got 19 of them to buy into it and actually pay us in advance <laughs> for a product that didn't exist because you know they wanted it so bad.
1: Yeah. Then you had the proof of concept by having that as well, I guess. If that would have happened with the first one, right? You probably wouldn't have had any sales if you're doing it with the other instrument that you created.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Everybody would have looked at us and said, you guys are nuts. We really don't want that. And we would have known.
1: I guess taking it from there, if you want to expand to where you are now? I mean, I don't know if you want to jump around to other products that you created or worked on that the entrepreneurs can learn from.
0: I think probably the next thing we did in that business, which actually almost got me fired. <laughs> that sounds was, good. Yeah. You know, even though I had developed credibility at this point because the business was salvaged with the new product line, I came into the office with an idea and he wanted to present it to me and he did. And what it was, was a a band-aid with a piece of plastic glued on top of it. He explained that if you take this band-aid with the plastic on top of it and you stuck it to your nose, to both sides, you know, over the top, that it would open up the nasal passages and allow you to breathe easy. And I looked at it and I thought it was one of the most simple, brilliant devices I had ever seen. Without board approval, I went ahead and I I licensed it, including giving the guy a stock option as part of the license arrangement. And I even hired a recruiter to go out and find a big pharma executive to run that division of the company. And then I went to the next board meeting. You know, our board meetings were quarterly at that point. I told them what I had done. Two days later, a contingent of the board came into my office at 8 in the morning and said, we think if you like this product so well, you run it, change your search parameters and replace yourself in the existing business. So in other words, what they were saying was, if you don't make a success out of this new business, you've already replaced yourself because what the hell were you thinking by licensing this nose bandaid when here we are capital equipment, You know, we're a high tech medical equipment business and you've just licensed a consumer product and we don't know anything about manufacturing and marketing a consumer product. So in part, I can't blame them. I mean, I think that their criticism was valid, but the device, this product concept was so brilliant, in my opinion, I just didn't think it would be hard to take it out to market. You know, I had done it.
1: So what was the name of the
0: product? Breatherite, the right nasal strip. So our plan was really fairly elaborate, but I thought accomplishable. Because my board was right. We weren't a a CPG company, a consumer packaged goods company. We didn't have $50 million in the bank to launch the product. And and even when we did start getting it out there and Procter & Gamble saw it, they were interested in the product. And so they had me come to Cincinnati and present to their new business development people. And they were the first people to say, hey, you know what? You can't launch this. You don't have enough money. It costs us $50 million to launch a consumer product. And how are you going to do it with you know your bank account? The cat sat on the I think my board had a a legitimate concern. But what I saw in terms of an opportunity to launch the product, I figured, I think we can struggle and find our way to get distribution. And once we get distribution, I think we can launch it using PR. So we set out to seed the media with press kits so that they would have it. We contacted 700 reporters. They all had our press kit. And then we introduced the product. After we had 20,000 stores with the product in it, we introduced the product to football players. And sure enough, they started to wear it. And overnight, we became a $50 million business. It only cost us about a million dollars to launch the product, not 50 million.
1: What point in time was this? I don't want to overlook the guy. Can you go more detail about the story about the guy approaching you, knowing how to approach you? And you're talking about licensing and giving him stock. Like, How did you know how to do all this?
0: Well, I'd already done enough licensing work with our sleep disorders diagnostic products and enough distribution deals. So that wasn't an issue for me. I should drop back though and say this, especially for people that are thinking about starting a business. One of the best things we did was to find the right lawyer up front. And we found this guy, his name was Pat Delaney, and he worked at a nice size legal firm in the Twin Cities where we were based. This guy was invaluable. For me, because you know, at the time, I'd say he was in his late 40s. He had a lot of experience with entrepreneurs and new businesses. And this guy was probably my biggest go to guy when I needed advice for one thing or another. He was my advice giver, he was my confidant, and he was probably my biggest supporter, too. He had an older brother who was a doc, and he always said, you know, I think doctors can be really good business people. And so he had a different viewpoint from the other business guys, particularly the the VCs. And that was an incredible help. So Pat Delaney was a, was a huge help. He worked with me when we crafted all our different deals. And so, I, you know, I learned pretty well. And by the time Bruce Johnson, who was the inventor of Breathe Right, came to me, we were already a public company. So we had already gone public. And so I was used to a lot of legal dealings and and dealing with investors and as well as board members and other business people at high level. So I had a lot of experience early in the process. So when we cut that deal with Bruce, I mean, doing an option arrangement, a license deal was really no big deal. And Bruce had also retained a very good attorney. It was really four of us sitting in a room, me, Bruce, and, and each of our attorneys, and we hammered out the deal. It was fairly straightforward.
1: Cause yeah, I thought it, maybe it was just literally your third deal, I guess. Cause it was your the first one that you talked about that you saw writing on the wall probably wasn't gonna work, and then you talked about the second one that actually worked out, made you money. Even if it was the third one, I'd be surprised that you'd be able to think that way.
0: It was our third product line, but it was our but in the sleep disorders diagnostics in filling out that product line and doing a lot of deals and international deals for distribution. I mean, there was a lot of legal work that had been done, and we had already been public. We had gone through a number of stock offerings. So from a a sophistication standpoint, in terms of those kinds of legal maneuvers, I was fairly experienced at that point. And when Bruce came in, we had been in business almost 10 years already. So there was a, a fair bit of experience. Uh, at that point
1: do you want to talk a little bit more about the growth story there
0: i think in the the Breathe Right story was an interesting one because it was really setting up it was setting up for success believing we were going to be successful i mean there was a lot of preparatory work a lot of people think that that business was successful because football players started wearing it and then all of a sudden everything happened <laughs> that's that's really that's really not what happened i mean it's a feat to get a new product i mean a new category you know of product into to the drugstore, for instance.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. Because even if I look at the competitors, I really don't see any competitors to breed right other than the CVS brand or the Walgreens brand.
0: Right. Yeah, because nobody really made it. And we made it so big that there was no reason for a competitor to really come. And it was just private label. Plus, we launched it and we had patent protection for many, many years. So that kept others out of the market. But getting that distribution was a real feat. I mean, when I took the product on and after we got FDA clearance so that we could actually start selling it, I made a rule inside the company, which was we are never going to sell this product direct to a consumer, even if a consumer calls us and we don't have distribution we're going to force distribution. And again, remember, this was before the internet was popular. This was before there were good direct means of selling. And what year was it? This occurred in 93. Okay. okay. You just don't put it up on Amazon and then people can start ordering it and then you can do direct fulfillment. Okay. That didn't exist. Some of your audience might be saying now, so why should I bother listening? <laughs> 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 we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't do it the old way, but that's that's not entirely true. You might start out going direct. It's like, I'm going to launch another product It's a consumer product that I'm working on, and I'm not prepared to discuss it yet today, but I'm working on that product, and I'm not going to put it at retail first. I will do direct fulfillment, but at some point when I want the brand name to be known, you're damn right I want that thing on the shelf. Why wouldn't I want all of that present to educate the consumer? Because educating the consumer is really an expensive proposition if you're not going to be on the shelf when they're looking for something else
1: no and i think we can definitely pull about creating another category what happens to a product that does create another category cuz we don't get to hear about the stories a lot so right
0: creating a category was very very difficult The first thing I did, because a pharmacy can't order it unless a wholesaler carries, because all your pharmacies order from wholesalers, unless they're the big chains and ultimately they're going to order from you direct because it's cheaper for them to do so. So in the beginning, you have to get all the top wholesalers to carry the product. So I went and I visited the top 10 wholesalers in the country and every one of them rejected me. And their rejection was, look, why would we take you on when nobody's calling us to buy it from us? So we're only going to take you on after people start calling us. And the, the big chains weren't interested because the, their comment was the same thing as uh, Procter & Gamble. It's like, you think you got any shot at making this a household item? You got to be kidding me. If it happens, we'll be glad to carry it. In the meantime, we're not going to take up shelf space with a product that nobody knows anything about. And so the first thing that we had to do was, okay, I have to develop some level of consumer demand and then I have to force some pharmacies around the country to start taking the product. The first thing I did is I found a startup PR company that I knew I could get a good deal with. And I hired a guy who was gonna do nothing but sit by a phone. And the PR company, I we struck a deal where I said, look, I'm gonna put $25,000 into this bank account and every time you get me an interview on the radio, you can withdraw 250 bucks. So my 25,000 should get me 100 interviews. And they would get me on radio stations anywhere in the country, and I would talk about it. And then I'd have the consumers call in directly to our company. And the guy I hired, Chris, he manned the phones, he would pick up the phone, and he would ask their name and ask who their pharmacy was. And then he would call the pharmacy and he'd say, Mrs. Smith wants to buy this product. And then we would ask the pharmacist who their wholesaler was. We'd call the wholesaler and say, Dr. Jones, the pharmacist here wants to buy this product from you. And we would close the loop. And we did that thousands of times around the country. And so we literally forced distribution. And that PR company, I, I ended up paying them $100,000 and they got me on radio 400 times to do that. And after doing that, we were in 20,000 stores.
1: Whose idea was that? I think that's pretty, that's a pretty smart way to think about it.
0: Well, that was my idea. And it was just brute force. I mean, at that point, I couldn't figure out any other way to
1: do it. Were you just thinking one day, like, maybe this is the way I can connect that loop where you're inspired by something else?
0: Well, I was already visiting the wholesalers. I was already talking to pharmacists. And and so it was like, what does it take for you to buy this? And so literally was talking to them and they were saying, well, I'll only do it if this, you know, after being told that you kind of like put the pieces together. It's like, all right, (laughs) if that's the only way I'm going to get this product in, uh, then I'm going to find the customer, the pharmacist, the wholesaler, and I'm going to connect the dots. And it
1: worked. Why did you need FDA approval for
0: Well, even products that don't require a prescription, but they have a it's really for the medical claim. We wanted to be able to claim that this will help you breathe more easily. It will help you when you have a cold. It will help you with allergies and it will help you if you snore, okay? And so we had to do clinical studies, which we did, and we submitted that to the FDA with the product and all the safety information, and then they approved. So you have to do that so that you can make the medical claim.
1: And when you're going on the radio, what were you telling the people who were listening to try to get them to understand in the category.
0: Well, I would describe the product, and I would read them testimonials, and I would explain how it worked. And there were always people that were interested because, look, let's face it. I mean, it was a product that if they bought a box of tin at the local pharmacy it would only cost them five bucks. A lot of people just wanted to buy it from us. But again, we refused because we were trying to force distribution, force distribution. We were ultimately able to make that happen. The really scary part, I mean, this was probably the scariest part of the whole Deal. We had done that. We had also called 700 reporters and gotten them to agree to take the press kit, not to do a story on it, but just to put it in their file because we told them that one day football players would be wearing this and they were going to want to write stories about it. So the scary part was oh my God, now we actually have to get football players to wear it. We sent a case to every NFL head trainer. And then the guy who was taking the phone calls from the the people that were responding to the uh, radio interviews, I said, every week you have to contact every NFL head trainer and convince them to start using this on their football players. And that's when I really started to get nervous because it's like, okay, we really need this to happen because that's the only way we're going to get enough demand to keep the product on the shelf. You just can't keep doing radio interviews and pull enough product off the shelf that wasn't generating enough traffic. Finally, one day, Herschel Walker came into Otho Davis when he was at the Eagles and said he had a cold and Herschel didn't like to use drugs. And so Otho said, you know, I got the perfect product for you. These right nasal strips. And so he put it on Herschel and Herschel absolutely love the product. And then, as soon as he wore it, he says, "You know, if it makes me feel good this good when I've got a cold, imagine when I've got a mouth guard in and I'm playing football. This is going to help me breathe better." And so he wore it that Sunday. And fortunately for us, he scored a couple touchdowns. And one of those touchdowns, he was face forward as he was over the goal line, and they got a really nice picture of it from the the end zone. And they they showed that picture on Monday, and then a beat reporter called us on Wednesday and did a really big story on it that showed up front page of sports section on, on Friday in Philadelphia Inquirer. And we got copies of that. And then we sent color reprints to all of the NFL trainers. And we said, hey, you know what? Post this in your locker room so that your players can see it because your players are falling behind. They, they're not using this great new product that will help them play better. And Jerry Rice saw it when he was with the 49ers. And he said, hey, you know what? I've got a nasal breathing problem. And so he went to their head trainer, Lindsay McLean, asked for some and he wore it on Monday Night Football that week. And that was a huge breakthrough for us because you know everybody knew jerry rice and the next day five head trainers called me and said can you send more product more of my players want to wear it you know this was in the 94 season by the time we got to the super bowl that year we had 15 players in the super bowl wearing the product i sat there with my kids with a stopwatch and we recorded how many minutes of free publicity we got where you could easily see breathe right and it turned out to be over six minutes. It would have cost us $15 million in advertising expense. and We got it for nothing. And we had not paid one
1: of those players to wear it. You're not kidding. I just Googled Herschel Walker nasal strip. There's all these articles from even the mid nineties about y'all blowing up right from exactly what you're saying. And we're going to put those in the show notes so we can take a look. But yeah, no, that's amazing. What happened with the sales right after that?
0: Well, we went from a very low level to an annual run rate of $60 We had so many orders that we couldn't fulfill them. We could fulfill right away about $7.5 million worth of orders. And even that I had to fight for to have that much inventory because nobody in our company believed we would sell it. (laughs) And we had orders right away for $15 million worth. And then there was just huge consumer demand. So the product took off right away. And I want to give one company some credit. Procter & Gamble, they were really quite honorable. After that took off, they called us up and they said, congratulations, you just rewrote the textbooks on how to introduce a consumer product. Because literally we launched it with a million dollars worth of costs and they were so used to spending $50 million every time they launched
1: a new product. That's pretty amazing. So what happened from there? So were you just ahead of the Breathe Right strip guy or, or were you elected one of the products?
0: I was still the chairman and CEO of the company, but I was running the Breathe Right business. But we did well that year. In 95, we did about 60 million in business. In 96, we did 85 million in business. But here was the problem. In 85, our domestic sales were flat. I'm sorry, 96. 96 versus 95, they were flat at 60 million. The, the additional 25 million in 96 came from international sales. We had done a deal with 3M and 3M started to get the product out in these other countries. And so I went to my board. I did have a president who was running operations at that point, and we had hired a a consumer marketing guy. But I took each of my board members out separately at the end of 96, and I said, you know, we got a problem. We don't know how to manage this consumer product like a real consumer packaged goods company. We need a significant change in our staff. And they looked at me and they said, you know, you've just grown from 60 million in 95 to 85 million. The optics of replacing your staff right now are just insane. And I said, I don't care. I said, we don't have the right people in the right place to do this, and we're going to falter. As a board, they would not let me make that wholesale substitution or even replace much of anyone. So in 97, we dropped. In 98, we dropped further. I finally got them by the end of 97, beginning of 98 to say, okay, go ahead and execute your plan. I basically had to transition the staff. And fortunately, we have a a number of consumer packaged goods company here in the Twin Cities. So I could find a, a host of really good people from them, particularly General Mills. I brought on some new people and they resurrected the brand at that point. So they saved it. But one of the things I did in 96, while things were still going really well, I mean, imagine 96 were companies climbing to an 85 million dollar year we're public already so the stock's doing well you know we had 25 million dollars in the bank and we're operating exceedingly profitably so we didn't need any money so what I did was I said okay, let's do another offering. And at first, my board looked at me and said, what are you nuts? We got 25 million in the bank. Why do we need to go out and sell more stock? And I said, well, we got $25 million in the bank. What if we have a downturn? That 25 million may, may not be enough to support our efforts. And I said, and anyway, look, the stock's at an all-time high. Why not take advantage of that and load up on cash? in the end, there's really only two great times to do significant stock offerings. One is when you've got blue sky you know, and you're essentially overvalued. The other is when you've already made it and you're at the front end of that big success where people are willing to give you a premium. We did an offering. We raised an additional $35 million. And so that gave us $60 million. And I'll have you know that there was a point in about the year 2000 when we only had 18 million in the bank. We needed all of that money to fully fully resurrect the brand
1: you mentioned twin cities a couple of times if people don't know or if they're listening internationally in minneapolis minnesota correct yeah okay yeah and is that where you're out of today yes and you were talking about in 98 they let you start implementing your plan what did you see in the people that you knew you had to switch people in order to i guess keep growing They didn't have a consumer packaged goods background and they didn't realize all the fundamental
0: parts of the equation that needed to be dealt with in order to effectively drive brand awareness and sales. And particularly what we were really interested in is repeat use. I mean, we had a number of applications for the product in terms of how it could be used, but we didn't fundamentally understand what was driving the business and what was driving profit. And so we didn't have enough market research to really understand it. And therefore, our advertising tactic weren't geared towards the aspects of the consumer that would fuel regular repeat usage for the best application. It turns out the best application was a better night's sleep. And so those people that were using it every night, they were the the key people and we weren't even making that claim. And we only understood that after we did enough market research to truly get down to the bottom of it. And that's why we needed the right people in the right places to carry the business forward.
1: So are you still with the CNS today?
0: No, we, we sold CNS in 2006. That was an interesting process as well. In 2004, well, in 2003, actually, you know, now that we had professionalized the company, the good news was we brought the right people in to resurrect the brand and to move it forward. The problem was I now had a group that made it impossible to launch new products. Fortunately, before they came on, we had launched another consumer product called Fiber Choice Juice. Fiber tablets. And that ultimately did well too with the new group. But after the new group was established and I was running the new products division, so I was evaluating new products and recommending that we take a look at this and that we try to launch that. These people were so professional that all they could do was find the negative. They never wanted to take any risk. So in 2004, I proposed to the board that with our current staff, if we cannot launch a new product by the end of 2005, that we sell the business, because our shareholders deserved it. There's no sense in holding a business if we weren't going to be able to, you know, launch new products and grow the business with new products. And we clearly, with the group we had, so it was my challenge to them. I said, look, you got 18 months. If you can't agree to launch a new product by then, then we're going to sell the business. And I had the board vote on it, and that resolution was passed. And then by the time 2006 started and we hadn't signed up a new product to be launched, we set out to sell the business.
1: You sold the business, and then did you just thought you were going to retire or what? I had already gotten involved in some other projects.
0: I had plenty of stuff to keep me busy with, but I just couldn't see maintaining this business. So we we hired the kind of investment banker who goes out and finds other companies that are good fits. And we had a number of companies bidding on the company. And at the end of the day, we sold it for $566 million to GlaxoSmithKline.
1: And did you have equity?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of equity uh, still. You know, I mean, not a majority, nothing close, but enough where if I wanted to retire, I could have retired.
1: It kept me going then.
0: I had started another project. I had always had an interest in alternative healing methodologies. You know, I had seen a lot as a physician and I had read a lot that told me that there were a lot of things that could be done in medicine that weren't being done because people didn't understand them very well. And they were hard to understand and there wasn't technology to measure all of these things, but yet the results could be had. And so I started working on synchronized sound, vibration and magnetic field therapy, basically to induce very deep states of relaxation and meditation. And that what we saw would also induce healing States. But I didn't want to turn it into a medical product because the FDA, FDA is tough to deal with on these kinds of alternative care products. So I was really mostly interested in doing these things to further my own understanding and offer it to people who were interested in in meditation. And that product is available now. It's called the Soul Tech Lounge, S O L T E C. So at soultechlounge.com, you can actually see that product. We've continued to do interesting research in that area. We've made a number of fundamental discoveries that we're not talking about yet, because we're still doing the research in order to be able to file all the necessary patents. I mean, some of the stuff we've found is really spectacular, but it's so weird and it involves so much study. It's so different from the way you think about medicine and and how the body and the brain work, that we need enough research to quantify what we're
1: doing in order to file patents that are going to hold up internationally. And can you just give us an idea of how are you even able to come up with this concept and what what it does in general? Well,
0: people had already developed a bunch of chairs, and tables that did sound and vibration. That is relaxing. Don't get me wrong. But that's that's a very limited view as to how things really work. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the term, Austin, mind, body, spirit, right? Well, you know what your mind is. You're, at least you think you know what your mind is. You know what your body is. But if I said define spirit, you'd go, oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that's kind of hard
1: to do. I mean, could you? Could you define spirit? Me personally? I don't think I can, but I'm open-minded and I kind of understand the concept, but it's kind of hard to define. I've read some books on it, but definitely, I feel like you probably have a better definition than I could ever give.
0: Well, you know, but look, it's really tough. I mean, and the reason it's tough is because we don't have any scientific instruments that really measure spirit. Some people can experience it better than others. Some people have certain receptive gifts or perceptive gifts that come via spirit, and they can see auras and chakras and things like that, and I believe them, and so that they can visualize them, but that's not a diagnostic test. As a physician, I can tell you that physicians in general don't like dealing with this. There's a well-known disorder called narcolepsy. Have you ever heard of narcolepsy? Yes. Yeah, it's a sleep disorder and and people have sleep attacks. They fall asleep very quickly, very rapidly. When they initially fall asleep, they move right into dream sleep versus the rest of us that wait 90 minutes. Uh, They also have a condition called cataplexy where with strong emotion, they, they have a reduction in muscle tone. It can be generalized or diffused. And they also have what's called sleep paralysis, which is if they wake up out of a dream, they can't move for about 90 seconds, okay? They're paralyzed. And it's just because part of their nervous system, this little nucleus in the brainstem stays active and it inhibits outflow of their motor neuron. You know, that's how narcolepsy is defined. But the truth of the matter is, if you go into a narcolepsy support group meeting before the doctor walks in, they're not talking about that they're all talking about their out-of-body experiences. Okay, and you go, wait a minute, what the hell is that? What do you mean, out-of-body experience? And if you talk to a narcoleptic about it, and you say, tell me about your first out-of-body experience, They all tell you the same thing. I mean, it's very, very consistent. They'll all say, hey, you know what? I woke up out of a dream and I was paralyzed and I got up, but my body didn't. And I found myself at the top of my ceiling looking down on my body. And so my question to them would be, what do you mean by I? What do you mean? I was up at the ceiling. And then they go, oh, you know, they're surprised and they're shocked. and They go, oh my God, I'm not my body. I'm that thing, that energy that was up at the ceiling. Now, other people have out-of-body experiences too. You could equate them also to near-death experiences. And so what is that thing that is not of the body but yet they identify with as that thing, as their mind, that, that that's what they're thinking. So it's an energy structure. It's not part of the physical system. Okay, follow me so far? So my thinking is, well, okay, if that's our mind and it operates through the brain, and I'm a neurologist, and the brain's electromagnetic and electrochemical, then this thing, I'm not saying that thing that is out of the body is electromagnetic, but at least it has to be able to interact that way. So if it interacts that way, then we can interact with it magnetically. And so, if we provide synchronized sound and vibration to stimulate the nervous system and the same magnetic frequencies to stimulate whatever that thing is that moves out, I'll just call it spirit for now, then maybe we can better integrate mind-body spirit, because maybe we're not so well integrated as a number of people have told me that know these kinds of things. And sure enough, what we've found is that we can integrate people much, much better and that has a substantial impact on the level of stress, relaxation, meditation, and health in general. So that's the kind of thing that I've been working on now
1: you ever pinch yourself when you're working on this like how you got into it and are you familiar with the how you say it, untethered soul you know about that book or no
0: i haven't read that book but i've read a number of books probably like
1: it right yeah yeah i imagine so uh, yeah i'm very open minded and once you start looking more into it to me it almost gets scary that i'm reading more and more into it and trying to understand it this The spirit part i guess that you're talking about but how you kind of got more into it because at, at first when you even you bring up spirit i guess some people just kind of look at you and think it might be kind of crazy to an extent like i I don't know if that's just me or if you've had that happen to you while you're talking about this type of ordeal. Well,
0: I have the good fortune of having been very successful in business and I've continued to be successful in business with other boards of other companies. And so it's like, look, you can call me crazy, but you know, I think a lot of people would like to be crazy like me.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> calling a business for 500 million. Yeah, I think right. so.
0: And, and the other thing I would tell you is there's 3 million narcoleptics in the world. Are you going to call all these people people liars. I'm not. And when I sit and talk with them, I think they're telling me the truth. I believe them.
1: I think maybe a couple hundred years from now, or even a hundred years from now, how much we advance where people accept certain things, right? Right it's just gonna take time right. for people more open-minded. So I don't know, do you see that happening somewhat sooner? Or later?
0: I do, I, and I'm dedicating, you know, I'm probably gonna make a, an awful lot of money with this Soltech Lounge. When we, we come out with what we're doing with this thing in another year or so, this thing's gonna probably become very popular and I wouldn't be surprised if it's gonna become a multi-billion dollar company. And I own a lot of this company because I'm, I've been the major investor. And I'm gonna dedicate all of that money To a diagnostic project to actually be able to measure the spirituals, okay? Because I think it can be done. I think it can be done with the scientific instrumentation we have available to us right now. It's very expensive stuff, but I think that's what we can use to research this. And I think this can become something that can be demonstrated in that way. And then I think everybody will have to look at it and say, well, you know what? I can't argue with what's being measured. It must be true. That's the contribution I would love to make to our society.
1: Yeah. One of my interviews was actually with a guy who started one of the portable float tank that you can actually do in your in your house. Mm-hmm. I don't think he, he even touched on the spiritual side really, but you know, it just the kind of Zen feeling you have, but he even says how much his company's taken off. I think it's kind of more of a hybrid in between maybe what you're working on and yeah. what he's done so and how much that's come like, okay, like people kind of get it. Like even if you just use it as a relaxation thing, if you're not thinking spirit at all, but he's taken off like wildfire as far as being able to sell that, that there's different places that you can actually go into a place, get in one of So could easily see that, obviously. Happen. I think people, what's the website again, so they could go look at what you're talking about that you're working on now?
0: It's this, the soltechlounge.com. Yeah, just Google Lounge, S-O-L-T-E-C, lounge.com, and you'll find the site. You get a, a better idea about it. If you want to read more about the kind of stuff I'm talking about and doing, I've written a book that covers this kind of stuff in more detail. It's called Addicted to My Ego.
1: So what's been the best part about everything that you've done?
0: I think the the best part is just having passion about what you're doing and being engaged thoroughly. And it's, it's not about the money. It's about loving what you're doing. And that becomes really infectious. And then what happens is you end up recruiting people that are similarly passionate. And the relationships that you form are incredibly gratifying. And it just makes for such a much more enjoyable life. So to me, it's find something that you love to do and do that. Then you're much more likely to be on your life path, which will be much more gratifying than if you're doing something you think you should do or other people think you should do.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really important part that, you know, leaving us with those kind of like words of wisdom there. I mean, we didn't get a chance to talk about, I think I said briefly, was there anything else that you want to talk about if you have a few
0: more minutes? A lot of people that are in the business world operate from their head. It's all about thinking. And what I've learned in all of these projects that you're much more likely to be successful if you also learn how to feel. Because when you're feeling nature gets better and better, Instead of thinking, you start to experience knowing. Knowing is a felt sense, not a thought sense. Knowing is not something you develop by thinking. It's something where everything just feels right and I know the path I'm supposed to be on or I know the right decision. And so if you can be making your decision from that knowing sense
1: as opposed to thinking, the odds of you being correct are way, way better thank you again for joining us What's what's the best way if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview what's the best way for them to reach you
0: yeah i think i think the email is probably the best it's d cohen so d c o h e n at i'll just say it and then i'll spell it tools to awaken.com so it's t o o l s t o a w a k e n tools to awaken.com and well thank you very much for joining us
1: thank you austin Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Millionaire Interviews. Be on the lookout for episode 69 where your host, that's me by the way, is interviewed by his brother, Walker Peak. If you want a refresher on Walker's company, then go back and check out episode 6. As always, thanks again for being a subscriber to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Almighty.